Should we include that, though? Because the doctor and yes. But they're talking about Lee. You're right. That's the part of the rule. Okay. Hey, y'all. This is the Queer Archive, a queer and feminist Doctor Who podcast. I'm Brenna. And I'm Caitlin. And this week, we're talking about the seventh episode of Series 11, Kerbalam. All right, let's pull to open and talk about our favorite 13 moments and how we both love and hate this episode, as we love and hate the ring. Okay, pull to open. What are our initial reactions? My problem is that I... You like how I start? <laughs> My problem is that I actually enjoy this episode. <laughs> The pacing is good. I like the dialogue. But the ending is so maddeningly wrong that we never watch it. It undoes everything that's good about this episode in one shitty speech. It's a real bummer that the structure and the style of this episode, golden. Yeah. Wonderful. It's really well done. Is paired with maybe the worst take in Doctor Who history or it's one of. shitty. Yeah. I'm not even sorry. We're going to praise a lot of the craft of this episode and we're not going to go easy on the message. I'm, yeah. So here's just a fair warning. I totally agree. And though going in, I really wanted based on the kind of the synopsis and some of the trailers, I really wanted this episode to be an actual, an actual critique of corporations or mm-hmm. capitalism maybe. But to me, the moment I knew this episode was not about it, about it, was when we were introduced to Kira. Mm. So pretty early on. I was like, "Mm -hmm." it's because the episode does not issue a corrective to that narrative of Kira. It uplifts that narrative and Kira as a moral example. So a lot of this we will go into in the Black Archive, of the Black course. Archive is out of control it's this week. It's a little week. thick. It's so <laughs> <ooshy> thick. <laughs> um, yeah. Who sees? So don't you worry. <laughs> Again, so like, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm already getting hints that this is the moral example p- person. So Judy, who I wasn't sure about yet how they were really framing her... Everything I learned about Kara told me everything I needed to know about Judy. That they were for real about this character. And her problematic comments from the beginning in defense of the corporation was actually the episode's defense of corporations. Yeah. So basically, Judy is really Judy. Judy. <laughs> I'm Judy. There's no exploitation in Kerblam. <laughs> yeah, literally, we went and saw a live commentary. <laughs> We went and saw a live commentary of this at the last galley, and I take notes when I go to the live commentaries so that when we come back and record our episodes, I remember what people said, because that was in February. And literally the only note that I have from this is that the Kerblam hallway where they hide in the closet backed up to the set to the Syringa conundrum. And I spent the rest of the commentary being mad about the ending of this episode. I do not remember anything else Pete McTeague said. I don't even remember attending that commentary. <laughs> so not at mad. all. Yeah. Because, like, we're in the future. We've seen the episode. Yeah. 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 It's a 48-minute live commentary, and I remember none of it. Just fuming. <laughs> yeah, just the whole time being, like, burning a <laughs> hole in your seat. Yeah. That's the thing. It's, like, while we were watching it for the first time, experiencing the episode, we're like, this is a banger. Like, this is so much fun. It's, like, got great pacing. The characters are doing great work. Yeah. 
Um, and then you start to see the seeds yeah. starting to be planted. <laughs> you can see the narrative arcs getting pulled through. You don't want to believe it. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, that's straight up. That's yeah. horrible. And then they're going to prove it wrong. It's it's going to be fine in yeah. the end. And then it just kept getting worse and worse. So now being on the other side of it, we're like, oh, man, what yeah. a waste. He said some shit about the speech in the end. And I was like, I'm immediately deleting whatever you're saying because yeah. I am so mad. You're just objectively wrong. Moving you, on. Okay, so you're wrong. <laughs> One thing I really still love that we get to see at the beginning of the episode is the TARDIS console screen, where we get to see outside into the time vortex. Because it's, it's a beautiful really time cool. vortex, yeah. Yep, it's still really cool. Also, the Fez. Speaking of the delivery, yeah. The fucking Fez, yes. <laughs> what do you think? Still me? Personally, nice. personally, I think the plume suits her better, but the I plume mean. Is excellent. She just. She can wear a hat. But I also love this for her, and I love that it's a callback. There's a couple of callbacks in this episode. The psychic paper makes another appearance. This is our reference. So does the Venusian Aikido. And 13's general exacerbation with white straight men. I've never worn to you. Yeah, this is is one of McTeague's strengths, actually. You can tell his episodes are written by somebody who loves Doctor Who. Yeah. And somebody who has watched a lot of Doctor Who. So it's it's like one of those things that I actually think Moffat was great at, where a lot of it was made by a fan for fans. And if you know the reference and you're like, oh, hey. You gotta have some of that. Yeah, yeah. I gotta say, I also really love a lot about 13 in this episode. Mm-hmm. Totally minus the terrible speech that just blows everything up in the air. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> Especially the energy when she tells Judy, If I ever find out that you're lying, God damn! it got real serious real fast. I also love when she says, I would respectfully suggest that you can't trust your system. Yeah. <laughs> Made like crisis as they're yeah. trying to de-escalate the situation. And there are a lot, there are plenty of Sass Lord Victorious moments coming up for y'all in our top three or 500 or whatever favorite moments <laughs> of this episode. But... She's just adorable. She has a couple of moments where she's just kind of like that childlike doctor that we love. The disappointment in her face when so she's told she can't, <laughs> can't climb on the, on the conveyor belt. Yeah. How fucking dare. <laughs> I love it. And she's already contradicting herself, this doctor. Just me or like a couple of episodes ago, she was all like, I love conspiracies. And this episode she's like, don't like bullies. Don't like conspiracies. So what is the truth? So what is the truth, Dot Jeff? well i think i'm ready to climb onto the conveyor belt to get out of this segment and head towards the high council we can talk about pd strengths and how we continue to stay in sagoon all right we're up in the high high council of gallifrey the segment where we discuss folks in those power positions in the world of who production who do we got? Written by Pete McTeague, like we were saying. I think, like I said, McTeague is a huge nerd, and that reads in the script. And it's also really clear to me that he is a good reader. He knows what works in a quote-unquote good Who episode, and he's trying to make that happen here. So pacing's really solid. The supporting characters are likable. The dialogue is snappy. There's a big speech. I will save my critiques for the Black Archive. Mm-hmm. It's all in the message, girl. Yeah. It's all in yeah. the message. And this was directed by Jennifer Perrot, the or Perot, Perot. Uh, she also did Saranga Conundrum, like mm-hmm. we said a couple episodes ago. I love the shot between the boxes when Lee says, "Don't run into the robots." Yeah, good. So ominous. Very scary. That's was, right. Here's the thing: is that like they were going real hard on yeah. the like 
these robots are creepy as fuck. And so you're like, okay, so obviously that's not going to be the case. This is a red herring. Right? But then, like, because they did it so well, I'm like, are they really bad? Yeah. (laughs) But should I? Yeah. I totally agree. Also, shout out to Arwa Wynne-Jones for the production design on this episode. There's a lot of really cool visuals and aesthetics, but I especially love all the vintage design posters that are everywhere. (laughs) Those are so great. Although I do think the symbol on the packing tape that they use to seal the boxes mm. looks like the Zygon Rebellion symbol. Dude, yes. The Zygon Invasion version. That is um, quite fitting. Uh-huh. I, I may have a Zygon parallel later in the Black Archive for How you. How handy. So yeah. <laughs> it's all coming together. Yeah. And then uh, music by Sagoon. I fucking love the Kerblam Man tag. I think it sounds like if the Duracell tag and the Intel Inside tag had a baby. Whoa. I know. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it is really good, right? Yeah, it's so good. Yeah. This is one of those times, this one and Rosa both were ones where sometimes um, on the subreddits, people will be like, Sagoon's music doesn't have very recognizable motifs. And I'm always well, like, fuck you. you're wrong, actually. Like, you're objectively <laughs> wrong. And I don't just mean that in that, like, you're wrong and I don't agree. I mean, actually, literally, factually, you are incorrect. Wrong. For only having, we're, we're two seasons in now, but this was his first season and already we were seeing those motifs play out. Yeah. So, so I'm also really interested, speaking of Sagoon's tactics, how he always has the base recipe, I'm interested in the selection of instruments on this episode. So we all know, if you've been listening, the base recipe, according to Sagoon, when it's a Doctor Who soundtrack, is the violins, cellos, French horn, and voices. So for this episode, he said he wanted to incorporate more things to make it sound more electric sounding, hence the electric guitar. But it also, at some point, sounds a little jazzy. So we get snare drums, a double bass. There are a couple moments where it almost reminds me of Bill's theme. And I'm just, I've been interested by that. We got to talk about how much Sagoon rules and we got to mention Bill. So maybe that's a nice place to leave it for today. Yay and yay. (laughs) Totally agree. Like a little boost before we brace for the Black Archive impact. Totally. Gird your loins, y'all. All right, everyone. Gird your loins. Because we are pulling no punches in today's Black Archive. It's the Black Archive, a segment where we get into it. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm going to say. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it's about. You know why we're here. I am fascinated by the hagiography of Kerblam here. They have their own artifacts. They're basically their own country. They've got like a peace treaty with Kandoka. That's so wild. I don't think I really thought about that. Yeah. And especially positing Judy as a wholesome person who's fighting for laborers and not a cog in the machine who's enabling the systemic oppression of humans in the galaxy. <laughs> I Yeah, I really do hate how they make the HR person seem super sympathetic because her role was so clearly to exhibit that corporations can be your friend. Mm-hmm. Big, big scare quotes. Yeah. So that's why we see when our sweet, sweet Kara tells her tragic backstory. Oh, so sad. <laughs> they include that the so only sad. present that she has received 
that she has ever received is from Judy, head of people. Yeah. Because corporations care, right? Woof. I mean, we're all so grateful to have a job, right? We all know how hard they are to come by. No, I hope that people feel it's a privilege to work at Kablan. Ew. Just big yikes. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Also, at the beginning of the episode, they just don't question an algorithm deciding what you are suited for. The system allocates work details based on fitness, stamina, dexterity, and mental assessments. Rather than maybe taking into account or considering what you're interested in yeah. as a worker, what kind of work gives you fulfillment. It's very clearly the company's needs and efficiency first and your needs last. Always be optimizing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's, like, shit we see every day in, like, corporate jobs right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but here it's very clearly laid out, and it's actually just not something that's critiqued. It's something that's just a part of this world. Yeah, this is one of those things, I'm sorry to say we have to talk about capitalism and Amazon again, but because this episode positions itself as a critique of Amazon, there's no way to not engage with how it's framing Kerplam as, mm-hmm. like, a good and wholesome organization, which the episode thinks it is doing that as a critique, but the episode falls on its face in that regard. So full full disclosure here before we really get into this, we have an Amazon membership in this house. We are not above... Like, I'm not up on a high horse for anything no. I'm about to say. I'm absolutely a part of the problem. We're but trying I am... to survive capitalism yeah. in COVID specifically, where that's some of our lifelines is yeah. being oh, able yeah. to order Delivery. stuff online. Yeah. 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 So apologies to Werner Sombart, but this is a late capitalism tale. That's a critical theory joke. <gasps> I could have said, according to Deridian neo-capitalism, but that sounded like a real mouthful to mm. sandwich into a podcast. Also, if we're talking theory, we're in the English major corner for just like 10 more seconds. If we're talking theory, this episode's critique of capitalism is actually in line with Frederick Jameson, who said that all assessments of postmodernity are, quote, necessarily and implicitly or explicitly political stance on the nature of multinational capitalism today, <sighs> which this episode Ooh. Absolutely. I mean, technically, it's a multi-planet capitalism story. But anyways, this episode <laughs> is ob- obvious. You need to take a sip. For a second. <laughs> this episode is obviously meant to be a knock on Amazon. So they're talking about the acceleration of automation, mm-hmm. parallels between warehousing, the activity monitoring, the basic nature of the business. Duh. Good job, Pete. We're reading. <laughs> Except here's the problem. The ending here doesn't actually come off being critical of its giant Amazon business. It ends the episode applauding them for giving two weeks paid vacation and, quote, vowing to make things better. Also, LOL, two weeks paid vacation in a month off on brand. (laughs) Did you catch that there? Yep. Also, just for the fucking record, corporations are not your friends. And mega corporations like Amazon are bad for the world in basically every way. Also, a giant corporation like Amazon cannot be reformed. It must be broken up. Which is what this episode is suggesting, is that corporations, yeah, they can be bad sometimes, and what's needed is reform. Yeah. Which is what the doctor is suggesting throughout the whole thing. She's like, you're a bad manager because he's obviously like a dickbag. And she's like, here's what a good manager would do in the same system. We don't need to change the system. Yeah. Just be a good manager in the system. Yeah, I love how this episode tries to do like a sneaky. Mm -hmm. It's like really turns that 180 when it's suggesting, ooh, the villains are obviously this corporate ass-faced dude, right? And yeah. And evil robots. Sorry, Mr. Slater. Wrong. It's actually blue-collar workers that are just too short-sighted and misguided to have a coherent plan for change because they're silly janitors. Like, what the fuck? Like, who needed that take? Yeah. Who needed that take? Capitalism is unequivocally 
the problem, not how it is used. Yeah. It will always, always be profit over people. And oddly enough, this story starts with the dilemma that people don't have jobs because robots can do repetitive work and deliveries, right? What I don't understand is, why does Kablam need people as a workforce? These are automated and repetitive tasks. Why not get the robots to do it? The story only imagines people getting the privilege to work in a warehouse again. But what the story doesn't explore is a world maybe without people needing to do jobs under capitalism. A world where people have the opportunity to actually discover and find meaning and satisfying contributions to society and their community outside of maybe a job. Yeah. Because that exists. Contributions to society exist outside of jobs that we're getting paid to do. So to me, that sounds like it would have been an incredible sci-fi topic. That's room for so much imagination. Instead, we're here trying to redeem responsible capitalism or equitable capitalism. Again, the biggest of scare quotes. And it ain't exist, fam, because capitalism is literally dependent on a lower working class to exploit so that the market can stay competitive. Yeah. It relies on those workers being dependent on their employer to meet basic needs, which is what we're finding here. Which is why we see the sentiment expressed throughout the episode that we should be thankful to just have a job at all. And the solution they come up with? Trash. It's pretty much almost framed as charity. The two weeks paid vacation, framed as charity. The idea of, you know, giving people jobs, the 10% originally was framed as charity. And this is the same way a whole ass country can gaslight its people into believing that unemployment is free money, right? So, (laughs) like we haven't been paying into unemployment for years. Like, that That is literally our money. That is literally our money. So, sweet Jesus. That came out of our paychecks. (laughs) I am taking my money back. Oh, my God. And, like, we know how relevant this is right now because COVID getting corporations like Amazon, big rich, and their COVID-specific policies is for healthy employees to donate donate sick time to the other employees that need it more. Like, the fuck? Yeah. Basically, this feels like the equivalent of Doctor Who doing an episode critiquing police violence and concluding that we should be satisfied with plans to implement more regulations when there are already regulations in place that they routinely ignore and work around. Yeah. It's bullshit that the climax of the episode claims systems are not the issue. It's how people abuse the systems when the systems like the police and capitalism are not broken at all. Again, they are working exactly how they were designed to. So don't come in here with basically a bad apples argument. Absolutely not. You can keep it. Yeah. It's not a bug. It's a feature. Point blank. Period. (laughs) (laughs) I told you we weren't going to go easy. Yeah. We're not pulling punches. Like, why would we? (laughs) We are segueing from capitalism to ableism. So just strap in if you haven't already, because there's still so much more in this section. And it'll loop back around to capitalism. It always does. That's right. Right. Ryan's line about it taking him longer to learn things is another entry in doing the literal least for disabled representation. I am glad that line is there, along with all the other moments where he says, like, this is hard for me. It just takes me longer. And also, what a just glaring indictment of capitalism that he's saying, I am competent at this job. And I also could not have demonstrated that because the workplace is fundamentally made in opposition to disabled people. And the only reason I got this far is because other workers covered for me. Sweet, fancy Moses. That is a huge point. Yeah. Very 
very important point that I feel like the episode misses, but yeah, yeah it like keep going. Swipes past it. And this is another moment where it's really important to note that the nature of ableism is like intrinsically intertwined with the nature of capitalism. It is baked into capitalism as a system and automatically disqualifies whole swaths of people from being able to participate in the economy. Exactly. And I think the way Ryan's dyspraxia was included in this episode for his character actually felt more natural and more organic than than usual. Yeah, up to this point, for sure. Totally. And, I mean, the fact that it was included at all yeah. is a step. <laughs> but I would have loved to see, like, this great opportunity taken because it's it's so fitting to talk about why capitalism is so dangerous yeah. through Ryan's experience. It would have been great to see that happen because it would have been really natural to talk about those two things together. And it's really weird because Ryan's role in the story just could have been pivotal on so many different levels. Yeah. The episode even has some of these seeds. So Ryan is there, you know, kind of just routinely acknowledging that no, work for work's sake does not actually give people fulfillment when the work is dehumanizing and designed for actual robots. If you're treated as completely disposable, the work does not give you purpose. Yeah. But it's kind of like a sideline, just commentary happening. Work gives us purpose, right? Some work, maybe. Ryan is coming here, you know, trying to escape, really, his warehouse work. And then poor Ryan just gets thrown back into a warehouse. Yeah, Yeah, like this storyline. You'll feel right at home. Yeah. They're having fun. They're doing detective work and everything. But, like, you can kind of feel it in Ryan's character, just not really wanting to return to that type of space. Yeah. And even when Judy comments to him, you'll feel right at home. Like, his response is like, Mm. Uh, it's not great (laughs) so he talks about the presence of all these things that we see at Kerblam the surveillance the inhumane working conditions and the overall dangers that are inherent to this job but he's talking about them on earth right now so there's all of these things that could have been they're just sitting there and the episode just leaves them that whole message is just okay that's actually not relevant anymore because we're going to pretend that corporations aren't being interrogated anymore yeah and kandoka (laughs) is a human colony in the future so you're telling me in some fucking future some magical future where humans have actually achieved interstellar space and established colonies all over Mm -hmm. many galaxies also fuck colonialism drop dead anyways but you're telling me in that future we still have the same shit because you cannot imagine a world outside of capitalism. It's just not possible. I'm like, why did we need this story when we could have had I know. one that imagines maybe maybe a different outcome? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. And this is what I'm saying. Like, I like this episode, but so many of its conclusions and what it's saying is so problematic. Like, Charlie as a weird stand-in for some incel white supremacist piece of shit. I don't <laughs> feel sorry for you, and I don't <laughs> sympathize with your troubles. Or whatever. I'm so confused by Charlie's stuff. Yeah. Because they made his character ridiculous. Like, the way that they wrote his logic and motivation is fairly weak and unconvincing. Yeah. So that's, like, already, what the fuck are you doing? Like, other than giving the company a bad name, what's the point of blowing up people ordering the packages and not the company itself? Yeah. Like, right there. Why does he also not run away when 13 gives him plenty of time to not get blown up in the end? Yeah. They just make him kind of unbelievable. And it's really frustrating that at the core of his character, the story is telling us the person that we should be the most suspicious of 
is the janitor because they can go unnoticed. They're implying that they will eventually abuse that position and enact revenge because we're treating them poorly. Yeah. And just to that, I say nah. Maybe advocate for just not underappreciating and ignoring essential workers in the first place. Yeah. And again, what Charlie is asking for is for more people to just be able to go back to work. Yeah. Period. They didn't ask for or imagine what it would look like for people to be treated humanely at that job or just, again, like I said, maybe find meaning outside of that job if robots can really do that work. Yeah. There's just no... There's no real acknowledgement other than some, like, throwaway lines about how Charlie is a product of the system that he Mm -hmm. is living under. Mm -hmm. So it's like the, no one suspects the janitor. Well, okay, I mean, that's not very helpful when what you really should be doing examining the system that produced this person and their radical ideology. Because that, if you, if you stop Charlie, that's not going to stop people with the same beliefs as him. Also, you're not really acknowledging the fact that people are being abused at that job. Yeah. All you're doing is now shifting me like, this radical is going to blow us all up. I mean, I get it. That's an immediate concern to not get blown up. But it was never, they never traced back to that initial problem. Yeah. It's the the baby Hitler problem where it's like, would you kill baby Hitler? Okay, well, if you kill baby Hitler, that's not going to stop the rise of anti-Semitism that resulted in World War II. So acting like there's some magical silver bullet where you take out one person and the whole thing falls apart, that's ridiculous. If Trump gets beaten this fall, that's not going to magically fix everything that's fallen apart in the last four years. Like, that's not how it works. And I do think Charlie's anger and his expectations of how people should and should not behave is really part and parcel with this episode's politics and also especially its gender politics, which I think are related problems. And I find that super troubling. Like, I like Kira and I also know that I'm supposed to like Kira. She's sweet. She's humble. She's friendly. And also she's a mild mannered, naive white woman. She's likable because she's built in alignment with, I'm scare quotes, fairly stereotypical gender roles. Mm-hmm. And I also think that it's whack as fuck that she dies. And the episode seems to present that as <laughs> acceptable stakes for stopping Charlie. Like, what the fuck? Oh, totally. Like, that's on purpose. Because Kara was low-key corporation propaganda. That was her role in the story. And I mean, obviously, the whole episode is corporation propaganda. But... Kara specifically is out here showing us what a good and grateful worker should look like. You have a great approach to life, Kira. While implying that it's her ungrateful troublemaker co-workers that ruin it for people like her. Yeah. That compromise her safety and ultimately end her life. Yeah. She is framed, like I said, as the moral example, similar to the good immigrant narrative. She is the grateful hard worker. And these types of characters are always a mechanism to show us who the unacceptable characters are. Yeah. So it's like a bit in Hari Kondabulu's comedy where he talks about the model minority. I don't know if you know this, but Asians are very well behaved. Asians aren't puppies, lady. What's this condescending bullshit? Asians, you're so well behaved. Enjoy your biscuit. Learn some adjectives. You know what I mean? It's very condescending. And when you're saying a group of people in a mixed setting is well behaved, you're saying other groups of people aren't well behaved, right? Like, you're very well behaved, Asians, unlike the Latinos in our class. You know, it's like, it's like coded model minority bullshit. They are a moral metric you hold the antagonist to. And often... They are the pure sacrifice that has to be spent 
to show the consequences of a troublemaker's actions. Yeah. And, like, talking about the way that this story presents abuse and reactions to abuse reminds me of fucking Zygons. Like I said, it's going to come back to that. Because, like, weren't we just talking about how great it was to be not at this place in Doctor Who? Yeah. And yet. And yet. Here we are. Anyways, in both Kerblam and Zygons, the only two narratives presented to those experiencing oppression are the violent terrorist with just terrible, incoherent plans, and then the perfect model citizen who keeps their mouth shut and doesn't ask for basic human rights. Yeah. And in the Zygon, the pattern follows, where the death of the innocent man in the shop who just wants to live here was put on display as a sacrifice to demonstrate the consequences of people who do not fall in line. Yeah. That sucks. Yep. (laughs) Yep. We're also not done. (laughs) (laughs) Couple more points, y'all. This episode is also weirdly anti-Generation Z, question mark. (laughs) When he says, my generation, we won't stand for it. Charlie says that. And it's like this rash, selfish, dangerous, like the line is not good. They want us to be grateful that 10% of people get to work. What about He's, the other when Charlie says that, yeah. it, it, it's like, it's being framed as you don't get how change is actually achieved. And it's really hard to not see that as a commentary on movements like Sunrise or Black Lives Matter, which are led by young people who are insisting on radical change. That's what I was going to say. I just... Like- <laughs> Why do we apparently need to be warned over and over again about those young kids in their revolution? (laughs) (laughs) When he says, our generation, we change things, like you said, it's in a villain voice, Mm -hmm. so we're supposed to think it's bad. But how is this the story that we need to be telling right now when young kids are truly actually changing the world and demanding better from the world that has so severely failed them right now? Yeah. Charlie's logic in this episode is shitty, but the things he's saying are right. So that this episode ends up, like, framing or outlining his logic as shoddy and ill-conceived and then uses that to show that he's the villain is just like, wow, congratulations on being entirely out of step with the moment. Yes. It just felt like Pete McTeague was just out of step with reality. Again, Charlie just doesn't seem believable. He doesn't reflect real people that would be in his position. That's just not what we look like. Yeah. (laughs) And so when you offer only two of those narratives, too, you're saying, like, this is what everyone looks like. It's either Kara or you're a Charlie. Yeah. So, again, it's just back to the whole Zygon thing. The villains are saying sensical things in a villain voice. And then (laughs) the the good people, are quote, unquote, are saying, like, ridiculously problematic things in the hero voice. Yeah. What is happening with this episode? (laughs) Uh, I think... I only have one more just, like, one-off note before Bechtel and DuVernay closing out this section. Yeah, it kind of seems small compared to everything else, but just, like, also maybe... For the record, yeah. Please stop making jokes that you just don't have the right to. These include, but are not limited to, some of my best friends are, dot, dot, dot. dot, dot. dot. And when (laughs) the doctor says, that's robophobic, just, like, that's racist, that's whatever-phobic. Yeah. This ain't the show to do it unless you prove that you can and you're doing it right, and this is obviously not. Just... (laughs) We've gone over why it's not working before, so... Yeah. Yeah. Please, CC, some of my best friends are bluish, and fuck right off. (laughs) (laughs) Some of my best friends are... Uh, Yeah, I'll just... I'll stop you there. (laughs) Okay, Bechtel and DuVernay. 
sadly, I think Duvernay is a no. There are so many white people in this episode. Truly. Um, And Yaz and Ryan don't really get very much to do. That's what I was going to say. It's like, it's pretty impressive to have two of your main characters be people of color and you still can't pass the dang Duvernay test. I know, that's so sad. That's not great. I was trying to remember this episode before because, again, we don't watch it that much, but I was like, oh, yeah, there's going to be, like, no people of color. And it's, like, in a warehouse, which is strange. Yeah. I think Robin on Tarbis actually brought this up, though. She was saying, okay, but that actually makes sense because if only 10% of folks are getting jobs, it's probably going to be more white people. Yeah. But um, there were people of color in the episode. They just didn't talk. So that's why I didn't remember. Yeah. Yeah. What about Bechtel? I I guess the doctor and Kira talk to each other. Since Kira's basically fridged, I don't know. I mean, she's not used to propel Charlie's story because his story shortly ends thereafter. (laughs) But... It is kind of, it feels like a fridging because she's used as a sacrifice yeah. to prove a storyline that was centered Charlie. So I don't know if I feel comfortable with her I'm fine passing. if it's a double no. Yeah. <laughs> Great job, man. <laughs> oh, man. We were doing so well on DuVernay for a while. It's sad to see the streak end after, checks notes, three episodes. Yeah, it really is. I know it will cheer you up. Let's head to the heart of the TARDIS to wash down all that yuck. We can hear a word from our sponsor on the way. Sounds good. This podcast is brought to you by Slade Brand Bubble Wrap. With so many of us getting our essentials through online orders, it's important to ship items with confidence. After all, delivering packages at warp can be a rough ride for your products, and you need to know that things will arrive unbroken and ready to use. That's where Slade Brand Bubble Wrap comes in. Our bubble wrap has more bubbles per square inch, which gives your package more bang for its buck. You can ship products with confidence that your items will arrive whole and with friendly packaging that will both protect your orders and give you something to distress with afterwards. Don't break your products. Pop in Slade brand bubble wrap. This is the heart of the TARDIS, where we talk about feels and supposed morals of the episode, which we have already thoroughly debunked in what the morals? Black Archive. <laughs> they definitely trying. <laughs> I wonder if we agree. Um, okay, so literally the only note I have in here is yes, and the doctor are cute. Doctor, can I make a request? Always. <laughs> and sweet towards each other. Yeah. That's the only note, because the actual heart of the TARDIS, it's not the system, it's people, is bullshit. Just a little bit, yeah. So, speaking of which, I am nominating the system speech to be sent to a crack in time and space. Here. Here. I will bet you. Send it. I will bet you anything that McTeague loves Elon Musk. Let me just say it out loud. He would. Oh, my God. Let me just say it out loud once for the record. Systems are not neutral. They are reflections of the beliefs and prejudices of the people that built them. Period. One more time for the folks in the back. Systems aren't neutral! (laughs) And tech isn't neutral. No! Tech is not neutral. Tech won't fight back when it's programmed to do violent shit. It's just going to do violent shit. And that makes that tech violent. Not neutral. Not still mulling it over. Yeah. Which is the ridiculous claim of this episode that the tech would fight back. That the tech does have a conscience. Yeah. Which is hilarious because the whole speech is that the system is neutral. Yeah. (laughs) The main thing is that there would be no system without humans making the system. Code is always written by people. 
And that's what makes Charlie's argument so weak, again, when in reality those abused by these systems are never under such delusions that it's just the tech and it's not the people programming the tech and running those companies. Mm -hmm. It's the same reason all those robots are blue-eyed, white dude, human-shaped. Yeah. Someone programmed to be. That wasn't an accident. Yeah. They're like... This is a choice I'm making. Yeah, which we can already see currently in our present day world, the one we're standing on right this very moment, where people are talking about incorporating more facial recognition technology. And there's already so many examples of facial recognition technology not reading black people's faces well. Like, it has like a Hmm, 90% not success rate because it was programmed by white people or like when the face ID first came out, a lot of people from South Asian countries couldn't get their phone to unlock because it didn't know how to distinguish between different features on darker faces. Absolutely. That is, the system is a, technology is a reflection of the people who programmed it, and it embeds those same biases, those same prejudices into the code. Absolutely. Same thing with photography and cameras. The way that cameras were built and programmed weren't built to capture dark skin. Yeah. And so we had to change the way we programmed cameras to do so. Yeah. But in this episode, again, our girl Judy, I'm Judy is always there at every step of the way to tell us otherwise. Um, there's a moment where the robot is seemingly gone rogue. Yeah. He's grabbed Charlie, trying to attack him. And they're saying, it's gone rogue? And Judy replies, of course it is. Like, no one would do that intentionally. Mm-hmm. And though there can be unintentional consequences for what you program, someone still programs them. And... Like you said, most of it is actually super intentional. (laughs) Facial recognition and surveillance of communities of color just doesn't happen accidentally. The tech and the software was designed and funded with this in mind. Yeah, and there's a huge difference between a broken line of code, which results in some wonky programming, like a glitch in the computer system, versus, oh, wow, that's so interesting. All of these people of color are not able to use this program the way that it was quote-unquote designed. Okay, well, that's not a bug. That's a feature. So conflating those two is only furthering the idea that systems and technology can be neutral. And that's just fucking bullshit. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to put a link in the show notes for an amazing org. I think they are based in Boyle Heights specifically, but definitely L.A. County. They're called Color Coded, and they speak to these issues all the time, and they are abolition tech to to make sure that this is being addressed and not to target communities of color like it has been historically. Yeah. So, bye, Ronimo, to the system speech and all of its bullshit. Yes, please. Bitch. Bitch. What about top three moments? Okay. Number one, top of my list, the power of three moment in Slade's office where it's the doctor and her two boos. And if anything happens to us, got Ryan and Yaz on her side. This the (laughs) fam, y'all. This the crew. You'll have me to answer to. It's the only power of three I need. (laughs) Graham can get bent. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was never pretending. We are, as I said last episode, at the point in the season where I have accepted that I like Graham because I do like him in this episode too. So we're He's just fine. we're moving on. I like him. I just I just don't want him to be a part of the TARDIS. <laughs> I want him to be the fun grandpa that they visit at on Earth I every have, once in a while. I have I'm of two minds, as they say. I hate the concept of him in the TARDIS totally. and don't think he should be there. And I think it's indicative of some of the racist problems that are embedded in the writer's room. But also, I like Graham at this point, And so now I do like him being in the TARDIS. And I am invested in his story because, yet again, 
he's the only one who got developed. So, <laughs> of course, I'm invested well. in his story. <laughs> Anyways. Exactly. I also, another 13 note, I love how supportive she is of her companions. Yeah. It's like every episode. I just, something that I just keep noticing She's really good at verbal affirmation. So yeah. in the office, she's like, Khan and Sinclair, the greatest detectives in the galaxy. <laughs> Kira's, oh no, what am I like? After she spills her lunch. Oh no. Oh, sorry. What am I like? It is my fucking favorite. Like There's I said. nothing like it. Yeah. Nothing. I, we hardly ever watch this episode. And so I always forget that it's coming. Oh no. And then when it happens. What am I like? What am I like? I literally guffaw because it is so funny to me. What is oh, that no, line? What am I like? What is that line? What is the way she delivers that line? I don't know, but I love it. And I'm so glad it's in here. Delighted anew every time. I also... Love, love, love Bradley Walsh's No. It's obvious. When he's telling Charlie he knows that he likes Kira, it just A plus delivery Bradley Walsh. Very good. He delivers certain words like that all the time. Yes. <laughs> like he said no recently in the same exact way. It's so good. No. No. It sounds like John Mulaney doing no. Mick Jagger. No. It sure does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, some sass lord victorious moments that I mm-hmm. promised from our 13. She's talking to Slade like she didn't warm to him, like she said, and her response to Warehouse executive, your boss. Well, you've certainly got the clipboard for it. Be nicer to Kira, please. How would you like a warning for insubordination? I'd love one. Well, I could add it to my collection. And speaking of sass lords, the fucking robots. Yeah. They definitely knew how to throw mad shade because. <laughs> Their delivery. Yes. Great conversation, yes, guys. <laughs> Why not pick up the pace a little bit with that head tilt? Which they do a couple of times in the episode because Graham and Charlie are stealing the <laughs> map thing. And, you know, they're pretending like they can't see nothing. And then at the end, they're like, excuse me? Yeah. Ex- uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> Ryan, as per usual, has a couple of amazing moments that I always love him for. Uh the way that he responds to Graham making fun of him at the park when he's like, that was you last week or whatever. Yeah. Like, funny. funny. Deadpan face. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, so funny. Um, Ryan, also, sweetie. What are you doing? Covering his eyes he's as been... he's jumping from a conveyor belt to After another moving conveyor belt. He's just talked about how he has a coordination disorder. He's like, this is really hard for me. Move. This is very dangerous. Covers his eyes when he jumps. Sweetie, you know. You're going to need that vision. (laughs) All right, y'all. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be back to talk about the eighth episode of Series 11, The Witchfinders. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at QueerArchivePod. We want to hear from you your thoughts and feels on this episode. And please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice because it really does help other queerdos find us. Until next time. Be gay. Do crimes. speakers and please be my doctor whoever yeah uh-huh uh-huh yes sir